and welcome to this episode of STATS, the podcast where we share the accomplishments of the Department of Surgery at Baylor Scott & White Medical Center in Temple, Texas. I'm your host, Dr. Lonnie Gentry. With this episode, we begin a three-part series on robotics and surgery. In the first episode, this one, we discuss the history of robotics and surgery broadly and here at Temple, as well as the use of robotics in urology. In the second episode, we will discuss the current state of robotics broadly and here at Temple, as well as the use of robotics in OB-GYN and otolaryngology. In the third episode, we will discuss the future of robotics broadly and here at Temple, as well as the use of robotics in general surgery. Now, this three-part breakdown is not precise, and the episodes will obviously overlap, but hopefully this outline will help us cover the topic in a way that you, our listeners, will find helpful. So back to episode one, this episode. To discuss the history of robotics and its use in urology, I've invited Temple urologist Dr. Christopher Wagner to talk with me. Dr. Wagner has been here, including his residency, for 22 years. Dr. Wagner, welcome and thanks for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me again. It's nice to, nice to see you again. So to kick off our discussion, tell me briefly how you ended up in medicine specifically urology, and even more specifically, using the robot in surgery? Well, I didn't start out thinking I was going to do urology, but I've always loved science and learning as long as I can remember in elementary school. Science was always my favorite classes, and I had a really good high school physiology teacher, and I remember uh, probably frog dissection was the moment when I thought, okay, you know, I'm really interested in this, and maybe doing something in medicine would be fun, learning about anatomy and physiology, and in hindsight, it was probably dissecting the frog that was the fun part. <laughs> that but, didn't um, happen to me. But <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you know, during college, I volunteered at, as an orderly at a hospital doing transporting patients around and responding to codes and things like that. But didn't really go behind the closed doors of the operating rooms. So you always wonder what's behind these, these you know, secret rooms in the OR. You're always curious. And I got a job working between college and med school for about seven months in the ER as a clerk. And at that time, ER was like, you know, the most popular show on TV in the 90s. And so I thought, oh, ER is going to be great, you know, but I still was always curious about surgery. And so um, over the summer before I started med school, there was a general surgeon that I would call in to see consults. And uh, as I was getting off shift one morning, I asked him if I could ever come and watch him do surgery sometime. And he said, well, come right now if you're not doing anything. So I went and helped him do an appendectomy, let me scrub in, taught me how to scrub. And I was pretty sure that was probably the moment when I knew I wanted to do surgery specifically because mm-hmm. I really, really liked, liked anatomy and, and surgery just fascinated me. So the smell of betadine still reminds me of that day, like now <laughs> when you're scrubbing in, in, in surgery. Urology became interesting during anatomy again uh, in medical school classes. So we had a clinical correlation lectures where uh, clinicians would come and, you know, maybe once every two or three weeks, give a lecture about something relevant to, to actual practice. And so we had a urologist that I didn't, I hadn't met, but he came and gave a lecture. This was Kodachrome slides, like mm-hmm. old real slide presentations. And he was showing um, anatomy of the retroperitoneum during testicular cancer surgery, which removing the testicle is just the first part, but urologists do a lymph node dissection in the retroperitoneum that involves major surgery around the aorta and the vena cava. And I mean, it, to me, this was something that was very eye-opening just to realize that that surgery is even possible, much less something that is done by a urologist. So again, I approached him and asked if I could come watch do surgery while I was still a first-year medical student because I wanted to get exposure to patients. And uh, 
spent about 13 hours in the OR at the VA on a Christmas holiday break watching him do a cystectomy. And I had also gotten a rotation with a, a private urologist that year in, in private practice and saw him in the clinic and doing, doing work in the clinic. And I knew pretty quickly that the urology was something that was something I was interested in. So uh, following medical school, I, I came to Scott and White and Temple for residency in urology. And um, at the time, it was a six-year program. So we spent two years in general surgery and then four in urology. And uh, mm-hmm. those six years were probably six of the most important years for development of robotics, at least in urology. That's when the robot came about. Mm-hmm. And that was something that was blatantly obvious to me, uh, going to medical meetings as a resident, presenting research in unrelated topics. But it was very evident that at national meetings, that this was something that was going to change the field dramatically. And nothing has changed it like it did at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was fortunate that I had the opportunity to, I guess, to be in training at that time and to quickly kind of recognize that that was going to be promising technology and latch onto that. So from the start, uh, had an interest in robotics. It, it was obvious to me. I mean, we uh, had started doing laparoscopic surgery uh, in urology in the late 90s and early 2000s in the mm-hmm. field of urology. And so here at Scott and White and Temple, laparoscopic nephrectomy had been, I'll say, attempted maybe in not routinely performed in the late 90s, early 2000s. But by by 2003, um, Dr. Lowry, who's one of my current partners, he was four years ahead of me in residency and had finished a year of fellowship and come back in 2003, which was my third year of residency. And he had done a laparoscopic fellowship to do mostly laparoscopic nephrectomy, some mm-hmm. other laparoscopic cases, but the robot was still not yet around. And it was immediately evident that these patients that were having laparoscopic surgery were doing a lot better than the patients that had open surgery. Mm -hmm. They're going home in one or two days, not a week. And they're having a lot less bleeding and complications and they're doing pretty well. And I've always been a pretty sensitive person for a surgeon. Like it bothers me a lot if somebody has complications. It bothers me even if they stay in the hospital longer than they have to. Like you want people to get back to work and get well quickly. And it's super obvious that laparoscopic surgery inflicts less harm on the patient and the recovery is faster. And so again, I could see that that's something that was going to be important going forward. And it was between 2003 and six when the robot really took hold in urology. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a tool that was developed in the nineties initially by some researchers at Stanford, Stanford research Institute and a, a Defar- department of defense group called DARPA collaborated to develop a number of different projects that could ideally do remote surgery or rescue uh, soldiers in the field without putting surgeons in the front lines in harm's way. And they had, they had some robots that could actually go and grab a person and put them on a litter by itself and then haul them back to the ambulance. Mm. Um, But this surgical robot to operate remotely was one of the projects that came out of that group. And there were two companies that emerged from that, that, were companies that aimed to develop robots for clinical use outside of military use. And one was called Zeus and the other one was a company called Computer Motion. And they both developed robots that were initially pretty crude to what we have today. In Mm -hmm. fact, the first robot called ESOP, A-E-S-O-P, was a robot that simply held the laparoscope of the camera so that the surgeon had their hands free and they didn't have to rely on a medical student to hold the camera. It wasn't very good. And so (laughs) 
when I came here, we actually had an ESOP in 2000. Dr. Simmons, one of the faculty here, used it to do some laparoscopic surgeries. And you would just talk. It was voice commands. So you would say ESOP left, ESOP right, ESOP look up, look down. Uh, kind of like Siri. Uh, you talk yeah. to this thing and it would move the camera for you. But that's about all it would do. And then the Zeus and computer motion robots designed uh, allowed for two additional instruments that could be remotely controlled from across the room. There was an entrepreneur at the time by the name of Fred Mole in the 1990s who also recognized that this is promising technology. And he bought and merged both companies to create Intuitive Surgical, which is the company that has dominated the market for the last 22 years. And they found clinical partners in urology to do prostatectomies. And they initially did cadaver prototype surgeries and then quickly took it to patients in Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. So the first surgery was done by a urologist by the name of Manny Menon, and he did a prostatectomy. And within a year or two, word quickly spread that patients were doing very well and that a laparoscopic prostatectomy that used to take, you know, eight hours with poor results and very difficult to do was being done in half the time and was doable. And so by 2003, he was presenting this kind of data at the AUA meetings and it was uh-huh. quickly, quickly spreading. Definitely patients a were, watershed moment. Yeah, patients were traveling to Detroit to have this done from all over the country because yeah. word of mouth quickly spreads. And then by 2006, when I finished my residency, there was probably a few dozen centers around the country that were doing robotic prostatectomies. So you didn't have a robot here yet. We got one here in January of 2005 is when we delivered the first robot and did the first case in April of 2005. So in the last 14 months of my residency, we had a robot here. And Dr. Lowry was one of the two faculty that did cases initially using that. But there was very little uh, pathway to learn it, how to do the technique and how to become efficient at it. So Initially, there were a handful of proctors that the company would provide, you know, names of resources that you could have somebody come and provide case observations and critique, but they can't really do the surgery for you. And that's about all you can do. You watch videos. There were a lot of DVDs and videos to watch and learn, but it's a very challenging surgery to learn how to do from scratch. Mm -hmm. And so those initial surgeries in 05 and 06, they took seven or eight hours and they were Mm -hmm. frustrating. Mm -hmm. And it was me as a resident and Dr. Lowry doing most of them as, a, as an attending that, you know, it was an exercise in patience. But again, the patients did well. We didn't have a lot of a lot of problems other than they just took a long time. So I had committed to doing a fellowship a year after residency. Initially, I was going to go to Johns Hopkins. And there were four, you know, internationally known faculty there, two of whom were more senior and matched at Hopkins. And I was really excited to go. And then last minute, each of those two senior faculty left to become chairman, one in New York and one in D.C. And both of them asked me if I wanted to stay or go and said, you know, you're welcome to come with me to my new job, start a new department, have a fellow there, or you can stay where you are. And I ended up in D.C. kind of at the last minute. But it turned out that was one of the places that had been doing a lot of robot prostatectomy for three years. And they already had quite a bit of experience. And so that year was really valuable because uh, I ended up at a place where there were great mentors who had already kind of figured out how to how to make the robot work and how to do the operation. And their program was growing quickly and they needed an extra person to help with both capacity and 
facilitate research. Mm-hmm. And it was a, it was a very productive year. So when I came back here, I didn't want to, I didn't ever want to stay on the East coast. So it was, yeah. it was I was quickly headed back. Sure. To they Texas. wanted you to, but uh, yeah, they offered me a job to stay, but I didn't want to stay on the East coast. I have my sister-in-law's there, but, um, but I was eager to get back to closer to Oklahoma and Texas where we have family here. And uh, right. It's a little bit slower pace. And, uh, and I loved being a resident working with people at Scott and White and teaching residents. So I was fortunate to have the opportunity to come back here. And Lowry and I partnered again as attendings. And initially, we did all the cases together. So every week, we would operate together, both of us, because we didn't really have a team of experienced people yet, residents, mm-hmm. scrub techs, or nurses, to make it smooth. And so we would assist each other every other week. And then pretty quickly, that ran out of space to do that. And uh, fortunately, within a year or so, we had residents that were familiar and understood the operation and how to use the equipment. It's just continued to grow since then. We've expanded not only from prostates, but we do routine kidney surgeries, bladder surgeries, ureter reconstructions. We've done all kinds of stuff over the last, uh, I guess, it's 17 years now. And it's a very useful tool. Specifically, the, the robot offers advantages in suturing. So a lot of what we do in urology is unique because when you uh, repair different parts of the urinary tract, the bladder, for example, you can't use any kind of permanent sutures or stitches or staples because it forms stones. So any permanent material or foreign body that stays within the urinary tract will, will become encrusted with stone material. And so we have to use, everything has to be done with dissolving suture, essentially custom made, tailored by hand with a stitch and a needle and thread. Whereas a lot of a lot of surgeries can be done with automated stapling devices, and so the challenge is a lot of the places we operate deep in the pelvis or way up at the top of the kidney are hard to reach. With open surgery or laparoscopic surgery, they're difficult places to get to. They're small confined spaces, mm-hmm. and suturing laparoscopically is very technically challenging, especially precise, tiny suturing. And the robot facilitates that. The instruments are flexible at the tip; they have little pulleys and cables that allow. Um, the tip of the instrument to flex and bend inside the patient. So the tip of the instrument replicates the movement of your hand. So the tip of the instrument has a wrist, just like the tendons in your wrist. Uh-huh. So basically, you you can make any movement that you can do with your hand, you can do with the tip of that instrument inside the patient. It makes it a lot easier to sew with a needle and thread. And so, it's a micro. It's like a micro level. Oh, yeah. So the needles that we sew with are like a quarter inch in size. They're, a lot of the stuff that we do is pretty small and, and meticulous. And the, there's magnification, about 10x magnification. Mm-hmm. The other unique feature of the robot is it has a, two laparoscopes side by side built into one telescope. So there's actually two sets of glass rod lenses inside the telescope and two sets of light sources. And so it casts a little bit of a shadow. Like if you had two flashlights or two headlamps on either side of your head, you get a little bit of shadows and those shadows provide a little bit of depth perception. And it's like looking through binoculars instead of looking through a single telescope. Mm-hmm. And so when you're looking through the, uh, the console or the, the video display, you have three-dimensional vision or 3D, like going to a 3D movie with three goggles. And uh, that provides a lot of advantage for, for suturing as well. If you're trying to determine how far away is this object I need to place a stitch. It's very helpful to have 3D vision. And so I think probably those two things, the flexible instruments and the vision system, provide a lot of advantages. 
for us in urology. Other uh, specialties have been a little bit slower to adopt, but um, it, it next probably went into gynecology mm-hmm. and then colorectal. There are some programs that do cardiac and thoracic surgery. I think those are less advantageous, but uh, also higher risk. It's a little bit, it's always a little bit risky to be 10 feet across the room from the patient that you're operating on. If you have some immediate bleeding event, it's not great to be 10 feet away and not scrubbed in with a gown and gloves on or you put your finger on the bleeding. And so uh, cardiac surgery in particular, I think is more high risk. And yeah, yeah, we've always been a little slow to push that here. Uh, Lowry and I early on, you know, we had numerous conversations about how to how to grow the program in a way that was safe and, and responsible, both from a patient safety standpoint, also uh, reputation and cost effectiveness. And mm-hmm. so uh, we knew that if we had only done a hundred prostates and we were simultaneously doing high risk cardiac and thoracic cases, and we had a patient that died from a high risk surgery, that that would also have a negative impact on uh, our efforts to to grow in urology. And so we've never really pushed high-risk stuff uh, that hard. We've always tried to use the the equipment in a cost-effective way because it's pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. The first robot, I think, was a million. The second one that we got was 2.3. Wow. I don't know what the current price is. They're more than that now. So They do so much more, I'm sure. They do. And uh, the company has gotten more creative with, uh, with financing, uh-huh. understanding that you know, capital is scarce. Hospital administrators everywhere are always reluctant to just buy extra equipment that's not going to be utilized at capacity or provide return on investment. So more recently, they have systems that can be leased on an annual basis and even more recently on a per case basis. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the ideal model. Although if you do a lot of short surgeries, you may that's end up a- paying more, but... <laughs> But uh, but it is easier to to consider uh, expanding equipment when you can only pay for what you use. Mm-hmm. So that's been helpful. So are the robots here at Temple busy in the sense that they're being used on a we have looked frequent at, basis? Yeah, we've looked at this. We frequently look at the data again because managing the resources uh, is an important part of the whole uh, program. And so we have probably the highest utilization per robot of any hospital in Village Scott White System. Oh, wow. So if you look at the number of cases that are performed per robot per quarter, we definitely have the highest utilization. And we always have. There are other hospitals that have been more uh, willing to purchase a robot that hasn't been used. Uh, but no, we, we use ours quite a bit. So I would say we're above 80% utilization on each system every quarter. And uh, I think in the last two years, it's really taken off uh, since we got a third system uh, and we've had more general surgeons using it. It's really accesses there. Yeah. Yeah. That is a challenge. I mean, if you have a limited access to the equipment, if it's hard to book a case, that's just, you know, it's going to pose a barrier. If you have a patient that's eager to have surgery and you say, well, we can wait two and a half months or we can do it this other way next week. Oftentimes they're more eager just to get it done. Sure. And so it's important to have the equipment available. And I think we will probably see in the next uh, coming months, one of our older systems is in need of upgrade. And then we'll probably end up expanding to a fourth system pretty soon. 
because the capacity is is there, the need is there. What is uh, an OR with a robot? Can you just kind of give me an idea of what's going on, who's where? Sure. So it's working. Uh, we need you need a big room first of all, which is another challenge. The bigger robot than a normal poses. OR rooms. Yeah. Um, I would say here, those listeners that are familiar with the Grabowski Surgical Center, our new operating room space, most of the ORs in the Grabowski building are, are larger rooms that can uh, handle a robot. Uh, in the older operating room, there were not that many rooms that were large enough mm-hmm. to accommodate the equipment. But the equipment consists of a, a patient side cart that has four large robotic arms that dock to laparoscopic trocars that are in the patient's body, usually the abdomen. And that, that piece of equipment is roughly six feet tall and probably four feet wide. It has a pretty big footprint. There is a surgeon console that looks kind of like a desk where the surgeon sits and there's hand controls and a video heads up display in 3D. And all three of our robot systems have a dual console uh, system so that we have the ability to, to work with two surgeons simultaneously. And that really is Tremendous resource to have for resident and fellow education because it works kind of like a driver's ed module Mm. where you have two steering wheels and two sets of pedals. Um, You can't really both drive at exactly the same time, but one person can operate the steering wheel and the other person can operate the pedals or one person can just take over and help out Mm. Uh, with just this flip of a button. You can, you can take over, show somebody something and then give it back and that back and forth way to collaborate is really, really helpful for teaching. So each of those consoles is probably about five feet tall and about four or five feet wide and takes up a lot more space too. Um, there's also a um, video stack, kind of looks like a stereo rack. It's about an eight foot tall stack of computer equipment and a video display. So the bedside assistant next to the patient can look at that computer monitor that has data on there about the instruments and how they're functioning and where they're located and what instruments are doing what at any given time. And that that computer stack coordinates all the data that's going back and forth between the surgeon console and the, and the robot arms. So the patient is on a regular OR table. The newer robots have their own special table, mm-hmm. and that table can move in position with the robot. So when the position of the patient needs to be changed during surgery. So like, let's say if they're positioned on their side or head down and they need to be changed head up to a different position. In the older systems, you would have to undock the arms from the patient trocars and move the, move the patient and then redock the, the arms. A lot of time there. You lose time. So the new system has a bed that's designed to work with the machine so that when the patient and the bed move, the robot moves with it. And so that saves time to be able to change position without having to reposition. There's little advances like that that can help uh, make it easier to dock or easier to change position as needed. So that's the XI system and the older ones, the SI, which is being phased out in the next 12 months or so, they won't support it. They won't provide service or instruments for it. So it'll be forced upgrade. Mm -hmm. So it's okay. Like an old Microsoft system. Yes. Time to move you on. have to you have to keep up with the times. Sure. Um, the newest systems are single port systems. And so those actually incorporate all of the instrument arms in a smaller footprint inside the patient so that the access point may be as small as a two centimeter port. Wow. And everything goes through one port. 
and then it's flexible inside the body. So everything kind of opens up like a flower inside the body through a very small access point, usually at the umbilicus or the belly button. So the patient has so, one incision, very small incision. For a single incision. Instead of, for example, many of the kidney prostate surgeries that we do, they might have five small incisions. The single port could do everything through the umbilicus. There's just the one. There's some advantages and disadvantages to that. The instruments are not very strong because they're smaller and flexible. They're not very uh, able to retract tissue forcefully, um, and they tend to uh, have a limited range of movement because they're going through such a small access point. There may be uh, instruments that clash with one another, angles that you can't reach. But uh, certainly, it's appealing to be able to do everything through one incision. Certainly in, in highly competitive markets, patients will seek out that type of technology. Whether there's a measurable benefit to the patient other than the cosmetic outcome is a little, remains to be seen. So the robot is, this is not sci-fi where the robot's doing the surgery. No, that's a good point. So uh, I don't really like the term, but in robotic uh Science and robotic surgery, they use the term master-slave technology. Mm -hmm. There's probably a better way to describe it. But no, it's not an autonomous machine or robot that's programmed to perform surgery. The the instruments only move under the direction of the surgeon console, so they're not going to move unless your hands are moving. And the FDA and the company early on designed safety features into the system so that it can't move if you're not intentionally controlling it. So. Mm -hmm. For example, there's an electric eye that has a sensor. If your head moves one centimeter out of the console and you're not looking through both eye uh, pieces, it locks up. The instruments won't move if your head's not in the console looking at what you're doing. So if you accidentally brush the hand controls without looking, it's not going to move. Not going to happen. Yeah. You know, if it's doing something that it's not supposed to do, you get an alarm. Uh Even if your instruments are out of the field of view, you're going to get an alarm telling you, hey, your instrument's moving and you can't see where your instrument is because it knows that your instrument is out of your field of you know, oh, peripheral yeah. vision, for example. Because one, one of the issues with laparoscopic surgery when you're doing surgery through a telescope is you have a limited peripheral vision. Just like if you're looking through binoculars, you don't have much mm-hmm. vision out to the side. and So all those things are baked into the system for safety. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do think that it's a safe way to do surgery, but the learning curve is higher. So I think it's easier to teach somebody how to do open surgery safely, but it takes probably a higher number of cases to learn how to do uh, robotic surgery safely and the limitations of some of the equipment. So what's the surgeon experience using a robot compared to open? Is it a a different different experience for you? Yeah, it's, it's probably what you might expect if you've ever um, you know, been to the movies or played video games or I don't know. My my son has an Oculus. I don't know mm-hmm. if you know what that is, but it's like a, a virtual reality headset. It's very immersive and uh, you quickly lose track of time, especially early on. Surgeons will, will take hours to do a case that they don't realize it didn't feel like it took that long because uh, it's They're because it's immersed. an immersive. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I don't know if you ever um, saw the movie Inner Space. Uh-huh. With uh, Meg Ryan, I don't remember who else. Really, they go inside the body. Yeah, inside, miniaturize, yeah, yeah. and that was, I think, uh, take on an old novel. But, but the idea is, you're basically inside this person's belly. That's what it feels That's like. That's what. It, like yeah, you're, you're looking through the headset. There. You're inside the belly, and you're right up close, two inches away from their prostate, with your nose in it. 
So you, you uh, probably the biggest point is you just lose track of time. Huh. And so early on, we recognized that these cases are taking too long. And so we broke this, the surgeries down into steps and kept a timesheet. And we still use it now, uh, mainly for the residents to kind of point out, hey, your goal for this step is 15 minutes. And that took you 40 minutes. That's too long. Like you may not have felt like it was 40 minutes, but it was. And so that would add up over the course of a surgery. And so by keeping track of that, those time steps, we were able to become a lot more efficient because you realize how much it's taken and pay more attention to the clock. So you're not so lost in space. So are all of your surgeries robotic now? Most, most, most of the cancer now. surgeries, like all, all of the prostatectomies, all of the partial nephrectomies are all robotic. Yep. Now. All, all, I would say if, if it's a surgery that can be done robotically, it's always done that way. So yeah. why would a patient want you to use a robot? Mainly it allows for a minimally invasive approach like laparoscopy. And it's useful when you have to do suturing from our standpoint. It makes a laparoscopic operation feasible in some cases where they would otherwise have to have an open surgery, which means more pain, more recovery time, Mm. oftentimes more bleeding, longer stay in the hospital. And I'll point out that not only benefits the patient, it benefits the insurer and the hospital. If the patient is out of the hospital quicker, more than ever, hospital beds are scarce. I think you know we all recognize that now after the pandemic, that the sooner you can get a patient out of the hospital and free up those nurses to take care of somebody else, the better. But those are probably the biggest advantages. We still do some surgeries without the robot. Um, there are some surgeries that we do laparoscopically, like a kidney removal, a total nephrectomy. We use a stapler to tie off the artery and the vein and the ureter, and we don't have to do any sewing. And we can usually do that in less time than using the robot because it takes some time to set up the robot. It takes time to dock it. And also the robot is limited resource. Maybe scheduling the equipment might take weeks. And if we can do it laparoscopic, cheaper, faster, uh, there's still some that we do laparoscopic, but we do a lot, lot less open surgery in urology uh, nationwide and, and here in Temple than what we used to when I was a resident for sure. Would you say that Urology gets the bulk of robotic time or is using the robot mostly, or is it starting to spread around? Oh, I think it's shifted. I think we have stayed about the same. And I think that uh, largely other specialties have either caught up to us or surpassed us in terms of utilization, for Uh sure. Like uh, Dr. Hassan, for example, with bariatric, just in terms of number of cases, has far surpassed what Lowry and I do in urology. Our cases are shorter cases, but the demand for robotic bariatric surgery has far exceeded what we do. Hmm. I, I think that's it's satisfying to see other surgeons be able to take advantage of the technology and provide benefit to their patients. Bariatric surgery has come a long way in 20 years too. Hmm. What I remember when I was general surgery resident, the first couple of cases being done here, and it was very different than what it is now. Mm-hmm. Now it's very routine, which is a good thing. Oh yeah, that, oh, for yeah. everybody. Oh yeah. yeah, it's it's uh, it's been interesting to see how surgical technology evolves over one or two decades. Like it can change things a lot. It's hard to imagine what ten or twenty years from now, especially twenty years, could bring. Um, so this is a future question, but I'll yeah. just go ahead and get your opinion. Do you see the OR suite as 
multiple robots in the future? Do you I, think I it think will it's gonna become more and more I different do. disciplines? And I think the future generations of, of young surgeons are probably going to end up doing the majority of their cases with a robot, even routine gallbladders. It, it's probably for the better. I mean, I think that... Well, uh, if it's better outcomes, sure. Yeah. And cost. I, I think that you can see better. I think you can probably do better surgery when you can see better. And I think that uh, the onus is on each specialty to do the work of the research to prove that it's better because insurers and hospital administrators, department chairs, they ask hard questions and say, show me that it's better. Fortunately, in urology, you know, we've had 20 years to lay the groundwork for, for that. And we have data from randomized trials that shows that robotic prostatectomy is better than open prostatectomy. We can show that. The patients do better in every measurable way, but it, it will be necessary, I think, to show that. But I think inevitably they will. that's where it's headed. I just don't know in 20 years what the robots will look like. There's no telling. They may be miniature. And- yeah. I mean, we didn't mention this, but early on in, in that first five years, between 2000 and 2005, I'm not sure which year, but it was early on. The group at Hopkins did a transatlantic surgery on a patient in, in London, from Baltimore to London. So the console surgeon is in Baltimore, and they're doing internet transatlantic cables to do surgery that far remotely, just to prove that it could be done. Oh. And they have surgical teams and backup people yeah. in both places and all this kind but of stuff. But they pulled it off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so there's no telling 20 years from now what is feasible. So is the military, remote military use caught on? Not really. Never did catch on. No. So I think, I mean, I'm not a, I have no military experience and I'm not a trauma surgeon, but I think that from what I know about trauma surgery, the, the lessons that were learned in Vietnam about rapid evacuation and early stabilization at a a close Mm -hmm. facility and then getting them, you know, damage control surgery and then definitive care at a hospital further away is still probably the model. And so that, that no, it ended up being that prostates were the the first uh, useful exercise that came out of all that research. It never really panned out for the military, but who knows what they'll come out with. Yeah, they could. Down the yeah, road. that's true. Yeah. Dr. Wagner, this has been a great discussion. Yeah, I really enjoyed thanks. it. Thanks for your time. Thanks for joining us. Look forward to other discussions together. This concludes our episode of Stats. Be on the lookout for the next episode of Sharing the Accomplishments of Temple Surgery when we continue our discussion of robotics and surgery.